before we can worship the true God, the scripture's clear, before our hearts are prepared to truly worship the true God, we must tear down every idol. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom is continuing his current series titled Tear Down Every Idol. Tom has part three for you on today's broadcast. It's a study on the subject of idolatry as it pertains to true biblical worship. Friend, do you worship idols? Now, if you're honest with yourself, the question may seem a little outdated, antiquated, if you will, perhaps even irrelevant here in today's modern world. But as Tom will teach, lessons from history, as shown from the scriptures, clearly indicate otherwise. Idol worship takes different forms throughout history, but it remains common today, even among members of the church. And if not in daily rituals, then in devotion and attention. What about you? How do you identify and then tear down the idols in your own heart? Let's join our teacher to find out here on The Word Unleashed. We've begun a study of the issue of worship. This is our chief responsibility. First of all, we said that the end for which God made the world was His own glory. Do you understand that in eternity past, there was only God? There was no space, there was no time, there was nothing but God. And God decided to create. But nothing in God bound him or necessitated that he create. Instead, he chose to create this entire universe and you, and he did so with one distinct purpose in mind, and that was his own glory. That brings us to the second foundational principle that we looked at last time together. The chief end of man, therefore, is to glorify God. If God made everything for his own glory, that means he made you for his own glory, and that means your chief responsibility is to glorify God. That brings us to the third foundational principle, and that is that you were made to worship. If the chief end of man is to glorify God and an an individual, an intelligent being like you and I are, made in the image of God, if we're going to glorify God, the chief way we do that is through worship. That means that we were made to worship. (coughs) Every human being has been hardwired by God to worship. You understand that? There are no exceptions. You were hardwired by God to worship. Now, man can deny that reality. He can have nothing to do with organized religion at all. He can even call himself an agnostic or an atheist. But what he cannot do, what he can never do, is change the reality that he was made to worship. Every day of his life, he will worship. If it's not biblical worship offered solely to the true God, then it will be what the Bible calls idolatry. But every human being today and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives and existence here and into eternity, every human being will worship. The question is, what or whom? 
Because of that reality, we can say with absolute certainty that idolatry is as great a problem today in America, in our city, in the evangelical church at large, and even here in this church, and let me make it more personal, in your heart and in my heart, it's as much a problem as it has ever been. You say, why would you begin a series on worship by looking at idolatry? Because it's important that before we study true biblical worship of the true God, we take some time to see what we will worship if we refuse to worship God with our whole hearts. Before we can worship the true God, the Scripture's clear, before our hearts are prepared to truly worship the true God, we must tear down every idol and every rival in our allegiance to him. We're trying to understand this whole issue of idolatry. Last time, we examined the biblical history of idolatry. We looked at a biblical history of idolatry, and here's the basic lesson we walked away with. Most of the passages about idolatry in both the Old and the New Testaments have to do with idolatry's influence, not on pagans, but on the people of God. Idolatry is not something that died in the past and that has no relevance to us. You know, there's so many Christians that assume idolatry means a certain thing, and so there's an entire segment of Scripture that is irrelevant to them. Let me assure you that nothing about idolatry is irrelevant. It is alive and well, and that's what the biblical history of idolatry told us. Today, I want us to look at a couple of additional elements about idolatry. Lord willing, next Lord's Day, I want us to look at the modern pantheon of idols. I want us to look at what our idolatry as believers typically looks like because it's not what you think. And also next week, if the Lord wills, we'll look at a biblical response to idolatry. How do you tear down those idols that are in your own heart? But today what I want us to do is I want us to begin by looking at another element of idolatry. We've seen the biblical history of idolatry. Let's look secondly at the inherent appeal of idolatry. The inherent appeal of idolatry. Why is idolatry so popular? Why has it spread like a kind of malignant cancer across the face of humanity? Or to put it differently, what makes idolatry attractive to the human heart? You need to understand that biblically, idolatry of all kinds, the most gross kind falling down before some statue, all the way to what Ezekiel calls idols of the heart, which you and I can be more than guilty of, are more than guilty of, all forms of idolatry ultimately find attractiveness to us because of two things, two inherent appeals. Number one, self-centered gratification. The first inherent appeal of idolatry is self-centered gratification. What made the pagan religions attractive? It was self-gratification. There was some latent desire that those pagan religions called out to. When you look at the pagan religions and the most common attractions in pagan worship, like the worship of Baal, you essentially find this self-gratifying taking three forms. Self-gratification displaying itself in three different ways. First of all, violence and brutality. This was an important and attractive part of the worship of Baal, for example. Asherah, 
whom you meet in the scripture, we met last week, was not only the goddess of love and fertility, she was also the goddess of war and brutality and cruelty. In fact, all of the Canaanite goddesses were especially noted for their cruelty. In one graphic account, and it is graphic, I have to warn you, one of these deities, one of these female deities, decides for no good reason to carry out a general massacre. And in the ancient account, after she fills her temple with men, she bars the gate so that no one can escape, after which she begins to brutalize and to kill them. The account records that the blood was so deep that she waded in it, at times even up to her neck. Under her feet, she crushed human heads, and above her flew human hands like locusts, the account says. In her sensuous delight, she decorated herself with human hands and heads. She took joy in the butchery. The document says her liver swelled with laughter, and her heart was full of joy. Afterward, she washed her hands in human gore before she went on to other occupations. You see, much of the attraction of ancient idolatry, and still today the attraction of it, is a delight in the sadistic and the cruel. A second part of idolatry that made it self-gratifying in the ancient world was sexual fulfillment. We looked at this in detail last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time today, but let me just remind you that even in the New Testament, when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7, Paul, as he warns the Corinthians against idolatry, says, Do not be idolaters as some of them, that is, the Old Testament Israelites were. As it is written, speaking of the incident of the golden calf, the people sat down to eat and drink, speaking of excessive feasting, and then they stood up to play. That's a euphemism for the orgy that followed the excessive feasting. In ancient pagan idolatry, as well as today, one of the self-gratifying attractions is sexual fulfillment. That's why there were temple prostitutes, for example, in the worship of Baal. That's what it promised. It promised violence and cruelty and brutality, and it promised sexual fulfillment. A third attraction was financial prosperity, and a third form of self-gratification was financial prosperity. Turn back to Hosea. We touched on this several times last week, but I've never really showed you a passage that documented it. Hosea chapter 2. As Hosea decries the idolatry that had come to be so much a part of Israel, he says in verse 5, For their mother has played the harlot, speaking of her unfaithfulness to God. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers. Again, the imagery here is of idolatry. And idols are pictured as these attractive lovers for whom Israel fled. Now watch why. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. Verse 8, for she does not know, God says, that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. You see what happened was, the people of Israel bought into the mindset of the pagans that at the hands of Baal, there was financial prosperity. You see, Baal was the storm god. He brought the rain. If you lived in an agricultural society, your success depended on the rain and on the crops that grew as a result. And so it just made sense to hedge your bets 
by worshiping Baal in hopes that you would have financial prosperity. You see what's going on here? Idolatry always has as its inherent appeal self-gratification, and that gratification all often takes these forms of violence and brutality, of sexual fulfillment and financial prosperity. It was true in the ancient world, and folks, it is still true today. If we are not worshiping only the true God, then whatever we worship, we do so because we have convinced ourselves, wrongly, that it is going to bring self-centered gratification. That's why we fall down and worship our idols. It's because it promises self-gratification. If those who live to pursue self-centered gratification are idolaters, and they are, then our culture is absolutely overcome with idolatry. Although the gods go by different names in our cultured and enlightened age, our world is still crowded with idolaters who are out to gratify the same basic appetites as the worshipers of Baal. Take the enjoyment of violence and brutality, for example. Our society, and you know this, you see it all around you, our society increasingly relishes in that brutality and that cruelty and blood. That was a common feature of the ancient polytheistic religions. And today, it's still being worshipped. It's still being sought for self-gratification. Whether it's bootleg videos of teens beating up the homeless, or whether it's muscle-bound men in pay-per-view fights who permanently maim each other, or whether it's dark and sadistic movies that glorify the worst of cruelty and random acts of violence, unregenerate man still finds a way to worship his gods. Many others in our sophisticated world would never set up a wooden idol in their homes, and yet they fall down at the altar of sexuality, just as the Baal worshipers did. But in our day, it's not the groves, It's the internet, or it's some movie, or some magazine. They fall down in front of their computer screen and worship their God. It's no different than the sexual sin that took place in the temples and in the high places of Baal. And consider the promise of financial prosperity that motivated ancient idolatry. Whether our culture's God goes by the name of mammon or wealth or, as we like to call it, materialism, it could easily be called the national religion of America. After all, that is the essence of the American dream. That's what it promises to deliver. So whether we're talking about the ancient polytheistic religions of the Middle East or the gods of our culture, idolatry in all its forms pursues itself because, or pursues us, and we pursue it because of self-centered gratification. That is often the inherent appeal of idolatry. But if you're sitting there thinking, well, good, because I don't think any of those attract me, and therefore you think you're exempt from the temptation to idolatry, you better think again. Because as we will discover next week, you and I are capable of turning any desire, any longing of our hearts 
into an idol. But whatever it is, whatever form our God takes, whatever temptations we have toward idolatry, it will always be about self-gratification. That's why man worships something other than God. The second great appeal of idolatry is self-rule. Not only is there an inherent appeal to self-gratification, but also to self-rule. You see, once you make a counterfeit for God, here's the payoff. It allows you to continue to remain at the center of your world. You simply choose a God who fits your own likes and desires and lifestyle. It is a designer God. What could be better? And if you have any interaction with the unbelievers around you, you know people like this who create, have created their own designer God. In a recent uh, issue of Newsweek, I read an article about a woman named Sheila. It happens to be my wife's name, but no relationship. And Sheila went on to describe her faith, and she called her faith, at least she was honest about it, she called her faith Sheilaism. Because she had kind of collected parts she liked from various faiths and made her own. A designer God. What could be better than that? Probably a store in the Galleria or soon will be that offers designer gods. Why? Why do people find themselves attracted to idolatry? It's for self-rule. Listen to David Wells. Why do people choose the substitute over God himself? Probably the most important reason is that it obviates or does away with accountability to God. We can meet idols on their own terms because they are our own creations. They are safe, predictable, and here, most importantly, controllable. They are, in Jeremiah's colorful language, the scarecrows in a cucumber field. They are portable and completely under the user's control. Wells goes on to say, People who remain in the center of their lives and loyalties need only face themselves. That's the appeal of idolatry. As another author put it, idolaters are the autonomous architects of their own futures. Scripture often makes this point that the appeal of idolatry is self-rule. In Jeremiah chapter 5, for example, verses 3 through 7, you find the people because of their idolatry, and what led to their idolatry was a hard-hearted self-will. They will not be bound by the ordinance of God. They will not give in to what the true God demands of them, and so they go after the false gods who give them exactly what they want. In Jeremiah 17, verse 5, in Jeremiah 17, in the first four verses, the the author Jeremiah talks about idols, and then in verse 5 he says, Cursed are those who trust, who put their trust or confidence in man. You know what point he's making? He's saying that those who rely on idols are in reality relying upon self instead of God. Paul puts it a little differently in Romans chapter 1. You remember in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, that the person who pursues idolatry has first made a deliberate choice. Even though they knew God, they chose not to glorify him as God or to give thanks. 
So the two features of idolatry that are most appealing to unregenerate men are self-centered gratification and self-rule. Now folks, if those who give themselves to self-gratification and self-rule are idolaters, and they are, then we live among a people who are no better than the Canaanites because we live in a culture given over to self-gratification and self-rule. And like ancient Israel, you and I, and like the early church, you and I must guard our hearts from the idolatry that's all around us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, run from idolatry. So the inherent appeals of idolatry are self-gratification and self-rule. We've seen a brief history of idolatry, the inherent appeals of idolatry. Thirdly, I want us to briefly consider the source of idolatry. Where does it come from? If there is only one true God who created everything, we have to ask ourselves, how is it that the world slid so quickly into polytheism and into idolatry of all kinds? Why are there so few who worship their creator alone? Well, there's no direct biblical account of the genesis of human idolatry, but there are several indications of how it came to be so pervasive. Where did false religion come from? Where does our own bent toward idolatry come from? And what are the true sources of idolatry? Well, frankly, the Bible gives us extremely clear answers. In fact, it identifies several different springs from which idolatry in all its forms whether it's idolatry of falling down before a wooden statue or setting up an idol in your heart, something that's more important to God, idolatry in all its forms comes from just a handful of springs. Let's look at them together. The first source of idolatry is it is an act of personal rebellion against God. Turn to Romans chapter 1. An act of personal rebellion against God. In Romans chapter 1, you'll remember we looked at this text last time. In verse 18, we learn that God is angry. His wrath, his orge is the Greek word. God is characterized with unbridled passion against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. God is angry with those who suppress the truth. What truth? Verse 19, the truth about God. That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. God has made it clear to all humanity who he is and what he's like. No one can ever stand before God and say, I didn't know. How has he made this evident? Verse 20, for since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, or his deity, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Now notice man's response to that clear revelation of God. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they chose not to glorify him as God, or to give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. 
Professing to be wise, they became fools, and as a result, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image, an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Listen, don't you for a moment believe the sociologist who argues that the animistic and polytheistic religions of our world are the way up. According to Paul, they are the way down. Those people worship the way they worship because they have rejected the revelation of God that he has made evident in their hearts and in the world around them. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his current series titled Tear Down Every Idol. Tom will bring you part four on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.